Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 85, Penns, Pennsylvania. First things first, I need to apologise about the delay. Uh, this has been for a couple of reasons, one of which has been the holidays. It is uh, New Year's Day as I'm recording this, so we've just had Christmas, I was also in Japan for a week, and um, I had a slight problem with not being able to talk for a couple of weeks. Well, I sounded horrific, just like a really bad croaky noise. Um, you would have known this if you uh, followed me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, which is always the best place to stay up to date with what is happening for the show. But now that the festivities are pretty much done with, uh, my voice is back and I'm in the UK with my microphone and not in Japan, we can get back to business. So, where were we? King's Philip's War, the topic of our previous episodes on the northern colonies, was of tremendous importance to the region. Prior to the conflict, English colonies were primarily based around the coastal towns of Massachusetts Bay, although there were some significant inroads being made, most notably along the Connecticut and Hudson Rivers. It was, though, it must be remembered, a frontier zone. There were many powerful Indian tribes around the region, but that all changed with King Philip's War. The tribes were defeated, and to all intents and purposes, were no longer a major factor in the history of the region. It moved the frontier. New England was now a peaceful interior colony, while new areas were being opened up to the west. Following King Philip's War, the major new areas to be settled was Pennsylvania. And, if we are going to talk about Pennsylvania, then we need to talk about the Society of Friends, otherwise known as the Quakers. I've mentioned the Quakers on a couple of occasions in the past, but it's now time to give them a proper introduction. The Quakers were a group of radical Protestants that emerged in England in the mid-17th century. George Fox, the movement's founder, was born in Leicestershire in 1621. By the age of 19, he became dissatisfied with the religious practices of those around him. This led him to leave home to try and find his truth. By 1647, he believed in something called the inner light. This was a belief that there was something of God in every person, and that this inner light was the crucial factor in religion. People needed to directly experience God and rely on this inner light to determine morality. Everything else, the baptism, mass, all other rites and ceremonies, were distractions that got in the way. Priests were unnecessary. Somebody else acting as a spiritual guide, telling people what to think, would only get in the way of the personal relationship with God that was so important. They met twice a week for public worship, often sitting together in quiet contemplation, until one of them had a revelation worth sharing with the rest. Women were given an equal position within the church, having all the same privileges as men. The Bible was viewed as an inspirational book, but not the direct word of God. In John 15.14, Jesus remarks, You are my friends if you do what I command you, which is where the name Society of Friends comes from, 
although it's a bit trickier to find out what the origin of the name Quaker is. One version is that Fox told a magistrate to tremble, or quake, at the name of God, and the name Quaker stuck, although there are others. Fox started travelling around England to spread his message, and he was often imprisoned for this. His was, after all, a very radical take on religion, abandoning the church and its trappings completely. You should be able to see why they felt so at home in Rhode Island. They had other oddities, such as only referring to each other as thou and thee. At the time, these terms were used primarily when speaking to servants, or other persons of inferior social status. It was a useful way of eliminating rank and class distinction. They were opposed to war, it was a useless waste of human life, and they didn't pay tithes or take oaths. Interestingly, a Quaker was elected to Parliament in 1698, although he did not take his seat because he refused to swear an oath. It was a very simply organised church, as you would expect, without any priests or bishops. There was a yearly meeting with delegates from groups from all over England, in addition to smaller quarterly and monthly meetings made up of smaller groups. In short, they appeared to be challenging the authority of both church and state. I cannot emphasise enough just how extreme the Quakers were, and this is why they received an almost unique level of persecution. This was true in England and in the New World, though they had managed to establish themselves in a few areas. We've covered their presence in Rhode Island, and they also made some inroads in North Carolina. However, the senior figures within the church were unnerved by such a precarious position. They wanted stability. They realised quite early on that their best hope lay in a colony that they controlled. George Fox had such intentions from as early as 1661, but it wasn't so simple. When the Pilgrims made their expedition to the New World, the continent had yet to receive much attention from Europe, aside from Jamestown and New Amsterdam. North America was almost entirely empty, aside from the Native Americans who didn't count. But now, things were different. The Atlantic seaboard was taken, and if the Quakers wanted to establish a colony, they would need to receive a land grant and a royal charter. This was unlikely to happen. For one, the Quakers were religious extremists, whom the restored monarchy wanted to destroy, not give free reign in America, and they had no allies with influence. That was until a young man converted to Quakerism. William Penn. William Penn was the son of Sir William Penn, who had been an admiral and fought for Parliament under the English Civil War, but who then changed sides and fought for Charles II during the Restoration. The elder Penn was in a position of great influence and could secure a good career for his son. This began by sending him to Oxford to acquire a good education and to prepare him for English high society. It didn't quite work out. Penn, instead, had a mystical revelation, and was inspired by the preaching Quaker Thomas Lowe. 
Penn was opposed to the ritualism of the Anglican Church, and eventually he was expelled from Oxford. The elder Penn was horrified and was deeply embarrassed by the behaviour of the son. He whipped him and sent him away from home to France, hoping that Paris would distract him from his religious convictions. It worked, and Penn returned to England, but he spent several years aimlessly drifting, and eventually he was drawn back to Quakerism. He started preaching and was imprisoned, but he was not quite a religious extremist who was completely distracted from the temporal world. He made sure to never get in too much trouble. At the age of 36, his father died, and Penn was now head of the family. He'd inherited a good relationship with the Stuart royal family from his father, being friendly with both King Charles and James, the Duke of York. He also inherited a claim of money that his father had against King Charles, worth £80,000. Charles had little desire to pay this money, and thought a more acceptable solution would be to just give him a tract of land in America. This was perfect for Penn. He saw this as a golden opportunity to finally offer protection to the Quakers. He had been interested in American colonisation for years, and was one of the proprietors of New Jersey, which was, at the time, split into the colonies of West Jersey and East Jersey. In March 1681, Charles II gave a royal charter to William Penn, which gave him proprietary rights in the land extending west of the Delaware River for five degrees of longitude, from the 40th degree of northern latitude in the south to the 43rd degree in the north. The land was named Pennsylvania, in honour of Penn, who personally hated the vanity of the name. In addition, Penn acquired some land from the Duke of York. You'll recall that the Duke of York was the proprietor of New York, which at the time included a scrap of land on the far side of the Delaware River, which wasn't included in New Jersey. This land would become the state of Delaware, and Penn received this land, which is how Delaware became attached to Pennsylvania. King Charles thought this had been a great deal. He'd saved £80,000 and had only given away the rights to a miserable scrap of land on the other side of the world. Charles thought this really had been a great deal. It wasn't, because Charles had no idea of what he had given away. What Charles had given away was a large tract of land which was bigger than the combined territory of England and Wales. This land contained some of the best agricultural areas in America, in addition to being rich in minerals. It was invaluable. Penn was some combination of landlord and ruler for the province. He could do what he wanted with the land, and make laws, as long as they were in harmony with the laws of England, and had the consent of the freemen, and appoint governors and officials to administer the territory. Any laws that were passed also had to be sent to England within five years to be passed by the Privy Council. If the council vetoed a law, upon word reaching Pennsylvania, there was a six-month period by the end of which the law would be void. Penn also had the right to establish courts and appoint judges. 
He could grant pardons in all criminal cases aside from treason and willful murder, for which he could only allow reprieves. The inhabitants of the territory could appeal against decisions taken by this court to the King and Council. There was a small issue over borders, as those writing it were not that familiar with the geography of America, and it had claims overlapping with Maryland and New York. The dispute with New York was solved very quickly, but the conflict with Maryland would not be settled until 1760, when the Mason-Dixon line was established. There were also conflicting claims with Virginia and Connecticut, both of which claimed large amounts of the land. Eventually, Pennsylvania retained its land, but it took until after the War of Independence for it to be finally resolved. In 1782 in the case of Connecticut, and 1784 for Virginia. When Penn received his royal charter, unlike for the foundation of Jamestown or Plymouth, there were already colonists living there. Please note use of the word colonist. There were already people living in all of these areas, the Native Americans, which is a point I can never make enough. The area had been related to New Sweden, which is why there were a mixture of Swedes, Dutch, and English settlers there. Penn encouraged them all to stay, and said that they would maintain their freedom to live under laws of their own making. This, freedom, was Penn's main tool in attracting settlers. He made appeals by sending pamphlets across Europe, which appealed to a number of groups, such as religious sects in Germany with similar views to the Quakers, like the Mennonites, as well as the Lutherans. Germany and Wales would be strong factors in the migration towards Pennsylvania, and would go on to form a major section of American society. These were the Pennsylvania Dutch, a slightly confusing term which does not refer to the Netherlands, but rather Deutsch, which means German in the German language. There is a famous urban legend that at one point German was almost made the official language of the United States, but failed by a single vote. This is completely untrue and is based on a vote to adjourn a discussion on translating some laws into German, which took place in the House of Representatives in 1794, but the existence of the legend is a good indicator of how large German influence was on America. We will have a great deal more to say about this in the future, but for the moment, we shall call it a day. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember that you can find more information online. There is the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, our social media sites, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and at historyjamie on Twitter, and you can send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.